It is wonderful to be together and to see everybody, uh, and it is a beautiful, beautiful day uh, and weekend here in Bowling Green. I've been waiting for this weather for a long time. I know that you have too, and it's a blessing when it, when it shows up. We're in a uh, series, in fact, we're right smack dab in the middle of a series of lessons uh, that we're calling Happily Ever After. And uh, primarily the, the, the target is for young people who are not yet married, students and single people who hope someday to get married, but it's not just for people in that category because I think anyone who is already married can benefit from the things that we're talking about that will uh, help you to uh, um, think through uh, your marriage and the situation that, that you're in and uh, how you can improve that. And so no matter where we are, whether we are hoping to marry, whether we're already married, or whether we just uh, don't have marriage on the uh, horizon, prospect horizon, but we still have relationships with other people. It's amazing how these characteristics that we're going to talk about uh, are applicable uh, across uh, all kinds of relationships that we're entering into. So there's something in this for everyone. I hope that you'll uh, tune in, join in, and uh, participate as much as you can and find ways to uh, apply the lesson uh, to yourself. We, we talked last week about how easy it is for us to fall in love. In fact, William texted me right after the sermon, said he couldn't get the song out of his mind. It's so easy to fall in love. It's, young people are going, what, what song is that? I haven't heard that one. But it, it's so easy to fall in love. The problem is that though it's easy for any of us to fall in love, we all find that it's difficult over time to stay in love. And reality is that people are entering into marriage unprepared because they had the chemistry that was necessary to fall in love, but like the character that was necessary to stay in love. And because people are buying into the marriage myths or the relationship myths that include things such as, when I meet Mr. Right or when I meet Miss Right, everything is going to be all right, regardless of what I do between now and the day that I meet them. In other words, I don't have to be preparing myself. If I just will meet the right person at the right time, then everything's going to be all right. And that's just not working out very well. And the reason that it's not working out very well is because promises without preparation are weak. You know, we think that just making a vow is sufficient, but just because we have the ability to gather in a building like this, stand before a gathering like you, and before a preacher like me, and make promises does not mean we have the ability to keep them. And if we haven't prepared ourselves by keeping promises and living with regard to other uh, people in our childhood from our siblings and our parents and with uh, other people that we grow up with, if we don't learn the character traits that we need, if we're not preparing ourselves along the way, saying a magic word or a series of vows is not going to do the trick to make marriage last after the fact. And because chemistry, though nobody's against chemistry, I love chemistry, chemistry's great, I love romance, I love the idea of falling in love, but if that's all we have and we don't have the character, then it's just simply not going to last. And we talked about last week why that is and the reality of, of all that, but we, we, we focused also on something else that I think is the big idea probably for this whole series and where I want to make our jumping off point into today's lesson. 
And that is this fact, that character, the character to stay in love, the character to have long-term relationships so that you have more still are best friends, still are uh, uh, husbands, still, still is my church family rather than used to be my spouse, used to be my friend, used to be my church. If we want to have more still ours and fewer used to be's, we need character, the character to stay in love. And that character grows as we abide in his love, that is the love of the Lord for us, as we abide in his love and learn to love others as he has loved us. It's almost like he's a vine and we're a branch connected to that vine and as we are connected to him and receive the kind of amazing love, the transforming love that he has poured out for us, it's like we're filled up with that, we're changed by it and are now able to love others in the same way that he loved us and that's what we need to do. That's the character that we need to develop so that we can remain in love over time. Now, the question is, does that really work? I mean, I, mean, I kind of get the idea of he loves me this way. As I lean into that, and then I look at the relationships that I'm in, I, I, I live that out. B- but does it really work? Does that really change me? Does that really transform me? And the, and, and the answer is yes, it does. Abiding in Christ, abiding in his love, And obeying his commandment that we love others in the way that he's loved us really does change us and give us the character that we need for the long haul. And here's the reason that I can say that with so much confidence, not only because I have experienced it myself in over 31 years of marriage, but also because of what I see in the Bible. I mentioned in the introduction this morning how people are changed through their encounters with God and especially with Jesus. And one of the most dramatic transformations that has ever taken place in history is that transformation that took place in the life of a man named Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul. And you hear me talk about this all the time, but Luke considered his conversion important enough to mention it three times in the book of Acts, so I don't get tired of telling you about it either. He was, I think we could say, one of the most unloving people that you would ever meet. But as a consequence of his encounter and abiding in the love of Christ that he didn't deserve, but he received it anyway, that he was kind of slow to to, to be on the uptake with, but he was patient, Christ was patient with him. As he was transformed by that, he became the kind of person who could compose words that would become throughout history the definitive description of love. In other words, when you ask people who know anything about the Bible, and some people who really don't know anything about the Bible, what's love like? How would you define, how would you really describe love? They're going to say, oh, I know where that is. It's, it's 1 Corinthians 13. And even if they don't know the specific passage, which was read for us a few moments ago, they know the words there, at least some of the words that are there. And again, remember that those are words that were penned by someone who I don't think if we had met him before he met Christ, we would describe as a loving person and certainly not the kind of person out of whom could flow such a beautiful and powerful description and definition of what love really looks like. So does it work? Does abiding in Christ change me so that I can love others the way he's loved me? The Apostle Paul is a living, breathing, well, 
He, he is alive. I don't know if he's breathing, but he is a living example. And his writing is a constant reminder that yes, it does work. It does change us and it does produce in us the qualities that we need to be the kind of loving person that the person we're looking for is looking for. So with that in mind, let's jump into 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. This is kind of, if you will, the fine print. Let me describe that for you a minute. The fine print, you know, when you get something and then you find out that there's some fine print. Last week, we talked about Jesus telling his disciples, hey, I've just got one commandment for you. It's a new commandment that's kind of not new because you were told this before, but there's something new about it. It's, it's this, that you love one another. And they're like, again, well, that's not new. We've, we've heard that before. And then he says, but now we're taking it to the next level because I want you to love each other as I have loved you. And then Paul takes that one commandment that Jesus made new and he gives us the fine print. He gives us the details. He breaks it down to explain to us exactly what the love of Christ that each of us who are Christians have received so that we may think specifically about how to love others in that same way. And here's what he says. We don't have time to look at each and every one of these or would be here all day and my voice would never make it. But we're gonna look at as many of them as, as we can and then we're gonna make some applications. So first of all, he tells us, this is the unloving Saul become the loving apostle Paul, writing about love, says love is patient and love is kind. Now again, I don't think Saul of Tarsus was a terribly patient or kind person. But once he met Jesus and began to abide in the love of Christ, he saw that this is the way I've been treated and this is how I'm learning to treat others. And so when I tell you what love is, love is patient, love is kind. And love is patient means that you learn to move at the other person's pace. When I, had, when I got married 30, almost 32 years ago at the ripe old age of 19, I really didn't understand this concept too well at all. But I learned pretty quick that Janice moved at one pace and I moved at another pace. Some, in some areas of life, I moved a little bit faster than she did. In other areas, she moved quite a bit faster than, than I did. And we had to learn to, to kind of sync up, to wait for each other. I mean, guys, you think that when you meet Miss Wright, you won't have to be patient because, I mean, she's perfect. There's, there's, no, there's no need for you to exhibit patience. I mean, she show, you knock on the door to take her out. She shows up at the door and she just, she looks amazing and she's ready to go. But what you don't know are the two and a half hours that she just spent getting ready to look perfect and meet you at the door. And you don't have any idea about all the shelf space that is required for all the creams, the powders, the lotions, the oils, the sprays, and all of the devices that you use to apply it with. I mean, you, you're going to be patient because not only are you going to be moving at a different pace because now you're waiting for her to get to looking so nice, but you also don't, you don't have any cabinet space left for you at all. I mean, if you can get your toothbrush and your comb over here, that's, you know, in the corner, that's, that's yours. Everything else is hers. You're going to have to learn to be kind. You're going to have to learn to be patient and to move at a new pace because that's what love does. And it's kind. This has to do with being considerate, recognizing that the other person comes at life from a different perspective than you do. I remember as a kid growing up, I thought my family was the standard of normal. Whatever our household did, 
that's the way it was supposed to be. And that's obviously the way everybody did it. And then you get a little older, you start spending the night over at friend's house and stuff like that. And you realize other people do things differently than we did. And at first you think other people are just pretty weird. And then you finally have that aha moment sometime maybe in junior high or high school when you start realizing, no, I think most people do it this way. And at least in this particular area, my family was kind of weird. And uh, the reality is that everybody who comes from their own family of origin and gets married brings their own unique experiences and perspectives to bear on that relationship. And you have to learn to have the kindness, the empathy, the consideration to, to realize that they don't see everything the way that you do. And not only because they come from a different family of origin, but because they're a unique individual and because they are the opposite gender. And men and women do not look at the world, they do not look at anything the same way. And what we have to do is not say, well, it's the men's way that's the right, right way, or it's, it's, you know, men are crazy and it's the women's way that is the right way. Both men and women reflect the image and glory of God together. And both of us need to be patient and kind and we need to be open to learning from one another as we grow in this relationship, and it's a beautiful thing when we have the love that Christ has shown us because wasn't he patient and wasn't he kind in his dealings with you? I mean, how patient, how patient has Jesus been with you? And he just says, okay, just take what you've been given and give that to somebody else because that's what love is. And he goes on and says, love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud. This grouping I've, I've placed together because to me, the one word that kind of defines all of that together is competitive. This describes sort of that competitive spirit that we tend to have, some of us more than others, where we feel like we have to have the last word. And if already in your relationships, even if you're not married, you're the kind of person who just feels like I've got to have the final say, or if somebody's kind of in the spotlight or they're talking about some accomplishment or some honor that they've received or something that they know and you just kind of like to sit back and wait and when they finished, you'd like to move in then with that final word and say, yeah, that's pretty cool, but, but here's the one up. Here's what I did. Here's who I know. Here's what I've experienced. And in and, and doing so, we just kind of push them down. Then what we need to do is to be prepared in order to have the character that we need to make love last is we need to begin right now in other relationships to learn it's not a competition. There's some areas of life it's okay to compete and we should compete and we should always strive to be our best. But when it comes to relationships and especially to marriage, the idea of competing with the other person is a lose-lose proposition. And so we must not envy the other person and the things that they are doing, and, and we want to root for them, not envy them. We don't want to be braggadocious and boastful or proud because pride causes us to do all kinds of things, and it keeps us from doing all kinds of things that are for the benefit and health of the relationship. And so these things have to go because, again, how prideful, how boasting, how envious was Christ in his love for us. Well then, as we move on to the, the next one, we see that love does not dishonor. Love does not dishonor. This is a big one. 
Because I feel like our culture has reached a place where honoring one another is almost a thing of the past. There's so much dishonor, there's so much disrespect that it's epidemic. And we need, and we need as children, those of you who are, who are youngsters, you guys sitting up here, listen, listen carefully, and over here, if you want to have respect for your mate in the future, you need to learn right now to show respect and honor to your siblings, your brothers and sisters. You need to show honor and respect to your parents, to your grandparents. You need to show honor and respect to your friends because as you develop these characteristics, these qualities, that's who you're going to be in the next phase of your life. And when you come into that relationship with your spouse, if you haven't learned to show honor and to treat others as more important than yourself, when you get into that kind of relationship that's so close and needs to last so long, you'll find it wearing thin and an inability, a lack of character to be able to do what you need to do. And I know it's hard. This isn't the easy way. It's just the better way. And so let's learn to honor others, not only kids, but I want to focus on the men for a moment. We're living in a time in which women, well, women dishonor men and men dishonor women. They do it in different ways, but, but the pornography issue and the music industry and Hollywood and all of that so objectifies women as sexual objects, as objects to be consumed used and discarded, that if we are educated in our way of thinking about women by the broader culture and by the porn industry and by the movie industry and by the music industry, there is absolutely no way that I can have a healthy attitude of honor and respect toward any woman, including my own wife. And so what we need to do is we need to eliminate all of those inputs into our life that are causing us to have degraded and dishonorable views of the opposite sex. And if there's something on our playlist, our computer, whatever, that would cause us to look at, think about, or behave towards someone of the opposite sex in a way that is degrading, we need to immediately delete that from our device as soon as we get out of here. That's something that should absolutely not be a part of the Christian's life because love honors people. And you want to honor your wife. You want to honor your husband. And you begin again, kids, by doing that toward your parents. Don't say, it's just mom. It's just dad. It's just my sister. It's just my brother. Because pretty soon it's just going to be your wife. It's just going to be your boss. It's just going to be your co-workers. And you go through whole life not honoring and respecting people and wondering why all your relationships are breaking down. Honor one another. And then he says, love is not self-seeking and it is not easily angered. You know, when I put myself at the center of my relationships and I put my agenda ahead of your agenda, that I'm constantly being annoyed every time you get in the way of me accomplishing what I'm wanting to accomplish. I know how things ought to go. I know how outcome I want to achieve. And you can either get in line and behind and support me in accomplishing that. But if you get in my way, I'm ticked off. If you get in my way, I'm angered. I'm stirred up is the literal meaning of the Greek word here. And that's so easy for us to adopt this attitude because we are just by nature self-centered individuals. And the Apostle Paul says, I've been there, done that, know where it ends, 
And I'm telling you that if you want a character that can last in a relationship, that goes beyond the flash of chemistry, then you better learn to stop being self-centered, self-seeking, and easily angered. We like to say, well, they make me angry. Really? I know people do annoying things, but there's got to be something in you that they're bringing out of you. And so it is, if you say that they push my buttons, well, they're your buttons. Deal with your buttons. Don't be so buttony. I used to tell one of our kids that. One of the other kids liked to push their buttons, and I said, you need to stop pushing the buttons, and you need to stop having so many buttons. Well, they just tick me off. Well, those are your ticks. That doesn't, that doesn't work as well, does it? But we need to uh, not be self-centered, not easily angered, and we have to move on. He says, it keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, and rejoices with truth. Have you ever known anybody? I've actually known people who do this. They, they keep files on other people. And I don't just mean for business contacts and purposes and things like that. But, but they literally keep a record of this person did this to me on this date. Here's the description of what happened. So that I guess at some future point they can go back if needed and they can pull all the details up to bring that back out to the other person. And love, Paul says, doesn't do that. If you do that, that's messed up. Stop it. <laughs> Let that go. There's no way that relationship, any relationship, whether it's a family, a friendship, a church, and certainly a marriage, can endure over the long haul if there is not an ability to forgive. If we hold on to every wrong that we've received, we'll never make it forward. One of my favorite characters in all the Bible is Joseph. And one of the reasons for that, while there are many admirable qualities about him, is his ability to forgive. In fact, if my memory serves correctly, I studied this some time ago. He is the first true example in history, in the Bible, of a person actually forgiving another person. He was wronged by his brothers who plotted his murder and ended up settling for selling him as a slave. I've had some bad things happen to me in life. Some people have done me wrong through the years. But I've never had anything like that. I can't imagine what it would be to receive that kind of ill treatment. And then once he became a slave, he was lied about, accused of a sexual assault by Potiphar's wife when he was totally innocent. But he was condemned and thrown into a dungeon where he was forgotten about by someone who he helped and who was in a position to get him out. And as the years went by, he could have become more and more bitter and angry about the situation, keeping a record of every wrong that had been done to him, thinking about the day is going to come when I'm going to rise up out of this dungeon, and when I get a little bit of power, the people who have hurt me are going to pay. That's human nature. But Joseph, as this great foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, got into a position of power and no retaliation, no revenge, no keeping a record of wrongs. Instead, when he had the opportunity to get his brothers, he forgave his brothers and forged a way forward in history that had never been seen before. 
I mean, it's an amazing thing and it's a beautiful thing and it is a relationally powerful thing when we learn to be forgiving of those who have done us wrong. Does God pull out the file cabinet on you and bring up to your memory every time you do something wrong again? You know, you can be 100% right in your relationships and some of us think we are. But that kind of person has the way of writing Mr. or Miss Right right out the door. You're 100% right all the time and you can prove it because you've got the records to prove it or you've got the memory to prove how everyone else was wrong and you were always right and maybe you are and nobody can stand to be around you because you haven't learned to love the way Jesus loves you. And nobody is suffering more from it than you are. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm giving you a gift. Take it, receive it. Realize that I'm forgiving you. I mean, do you know that? If this is a struggle for you, do you really embrace, have you fully received the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you on the cross and that there is now no condemnation in your life? Those sins that you've committed against heaven are no longer held against you at all. Just take that in. Abide in that, dwell in that, remain in that love and be nourished by it so that you can do this for others. You won't do this on your own, but Christ in me strengthens me and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, he goes on and says that love always protects, love always trusts, love always hopes, and love always perseveres. I like that statement that it protects because there's always things trying to destroy your relationships. People who are trying to wedge between you and the people that you love. Problems that, from the past that will try to crop up. But what, what, what protection means is that you're establishing boundaries for yourself personally and for the relationship that prevents those evil things that would undermine the integrity of your relationship from getting in there in the first place. It's husbands and wives being careful about the time they spend with those of the opposite sex so that nothing ever happens and nothing could ever come in there that could, could undermine the relationship. It's about college students and high school students behaving themselves in a proper way in their dating relationships, even with those that they're not going to marry so that they don't smuggle into their marriages in the future problems from the past that didn't have to be a part of it. It always protects. It's always thinking about what can I do to preserve the integrity of the relationship that trusts. That's a big thing. We need to give and we need to earn trust. We need to give trust. And in every relationship, there's going to be some gaps between what I expected and what I'm experiencing. And I get to make the call of what goes in the gap. Either distrust or I can assume the best and believe that there's probably a good reason why they're late for this appointment or whatever else it is that's going on. And love always hopes a positive outlook, a belief that things can improve, that they will get better. It may take time, but I'm, I'm hoping for the best, not expecting the worst, and love always perseveres. One of my favorite statements in the Gospel of John, which is my favorite of the Gospels, is where it says that when Jesus was really preparing himself to go to the cross, 
It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And, and that, that means, I think, that he loved them from, from start to finish till, till his life was over, but it means also that he loved them to the fullest possible extent. And I mean, hey, as, we, as Christians, we know what that means. We know what he did. We know where he went. We know what he suffered in order to prove his love for us and to show his love for us and to demonstrate the Father's love for us. But again, as we receive that, that's, that's the quality that we want to develop within ourselves, that we're going to persevere in this relationship. We're not going to throw it away. We're going to stick with it. We're going to see it through. We're going to trust, hope, and we are going to persevere. We're going to love to the end. We're going to finish this thing together. And so, when you look for Mr. or Mrs. Wright, Miss Wright, don't be looking for Mrs. Wright, look for Miss Wright. When you're looking for Miss Wright, <clears throat> right? There's a backstory there. But, you know, he or she is patient. You want them to be patient. You're wanting that. You want them to be kind to you. You're looking for someone who isn't jealous all the time, someone who isn't arrogant and prideful, not someone who dishonors you, but shows you that respect. And you're looking for someone who's selfless, who's not easily provoked and angered. You're looking for a person who's not a scorekeeper. You want someone who will protect that relationship, someone who trusts you, someone who's optimistic, and someone who will be committed to persevere and has shown that they can from the relationships that they've already had. And because that's what you're looking for, and Jesus said, here's the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what you need to be becoming for that person so that when you meet the one you're looking for, you're the one that they're looking for and can be for them what you need to be for them. And so let's make this just as practical as we possibly can. Practical as we possibly can. Here's how we can, no matter where we are in life at this point, begin to develop these qualities in ourselves for the future. By asking this question, in what relationship right now, in what relationship am I, pra- am I not practicing one or more of these aspects of love? When you look at that list of characteristics of what love is, I want to know what love is. Here it is. When I look at that list and I think of all my relationships, which one of these characteristics am I lacking in the most? I don't want to overwhelm you. Maybe just pick one for now get it conquered and you can move on to the next one. But which one of these qualities are you lacking in with your relationship with your mom and dad? In your relationship with your brother or your sister? Is it patience? Is it trust? Is it not being easily angered? Is it honoring them? Where is it that you're having a struggle in your current relationships? And once you've answered that question, the immediate thing that will happen to you because it's happening to me, because it's human nature, is we'll start making excuses. Well, yeah, I mean, I have this problem with my brother, but, but there's a reason for it. And the excuses that we come up with are probably like this. They're difficult to love. I mean, Lawrence, if you knew what my brother was like, you wouldn't say I need to be this way toward him. Are you difficult to love sometimes? How difficult was it for Jesus to love you? And we sometimes say, well, you know, they just bring out the worst in me. And we've already covered that. Don't be so 
buttony. If they're bringing out the worst in you, they can only bring out of you what's actually in you, so now you know what you need to work on. And maybe our favorite is, yeah, I, I, that relationship is not right, it's not good, it's not healthy, it's not what it needs to be, but you know, and I'm trying to be objective here, it is 90% their fault. I'm not perfect and I'll own 10%. I can see some things that I could have done better, but it's 90% their fault. And so what most people do is they focus 100% of their energy on the 90% of what the other person has done wrong. But what people who wanna grow and develop and become what Christ has done for us and have that available for other people is the person who says, I'm gonna focus 100% of my attention and my energy on the 10% of the problem that I am responsible for. And if I will do that, then I'm in a position to actually change things, to grow and to become what I need to be. And whether they ever change or not, I will at least have done my duty before God and toward this other person. After all, one more time, I'm gonna ask you this question. What percentage of the problem that existed between God and you was God's fault? How much was Jesus responsible for the disruption and the harmony between you and heaven? And how much percentage of it did he take responsibility for? Wasn't his fault. Wasn't any of it his fault. And yet he's the one who entered in and uh, took on the, the, the task of carrying the burden and taking the responsibility to repair the relationship. It's amazing. And so we have the choice. We can make excuses or we can make progress, but we can't make both. And if we wanna be ready when we meet Mr. or Miss Wright, then we need to be focused on the things that I'm lacking in now, in the relationships that I already have, so that that character deficit will be resolved, and when that opportunity comes, we can be happy forever after. Now, you don't have to do this, you can make excuses and you can continue to look to um, Hollywood to provide the pattern for how relationships work and watch romantic comedies till you're, you know, till, till the cows come home. But you know how they all work, right? They're, a minute, they're an hour and 45 minutes long, if you're lucky. And, and five minutes into it, you know exactly who the two people who just are just perfect for each other are. And you spend the next hour and a half waiting for them to both figure it out. But you know where they all end at? All the romantic comedies end at the marriage altar, right? Right where the work actually begins. But we just, we don't want to go there. We stop right here at the wedding. And you can just continue to think because you've absorbed that, that when you meet Mr. Wright, everything's gonna be all right. I'll be just fine when I find the one I'm looking for. And I can ignore the problems that are obviously there in my relationship skills and character. But you know, those romantic comedies are kind of based on fairy tales about Prince Charming coming in. When Prince Charming comes in, everything is, is okay. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul leans into us at this point and he kind of wraps this whole section about loving one another up with these amazing words when he says to us, when I was a child, 
You know, when I was into fairy tales and romantic comedies, apparently Saul loved those before he was a Christian. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. And really, you know, nobody had any problem with that because that's what children do. We expect them to look at things childlike manner. And, and, when, and when you have a childlike attitude toward marriage, that's understandable when you're a child. But what Paul says is, when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And that's what I want to encourage each and every one of us to do this morning, is to put those ways of childhood behind us. And the ways of childhood behind us doesn't mean that it's not happily ever after. I'm not asking you to put happily ever after behind you. I'm asking us to consider putting behind us the way we think happily ever after happens. Happily ever after is a real thing. It's not just for children. I can vouch for 31 years of happily ever after. But the reality is that it happens not because of the romantic comedy situation that ends in the marriage uh, at at the wedding, but because of the work that you put in of receiving, abiding in, being changed, and giving the kind of love that Christ has shown to us. And so this morning, he is inviting all of us to step into the relational maturity that abiding in Christ can form in you. If you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you this morning to come to him, to put him on, and to begin to grow up into Christ, to put away childish notions about how things work, and to take on the character that's formed by Christ dwelling in you. Now, I want to close with one more thought, and then we're going to stand and, and sing. I know, I know for some of us, series like this is, is particularly challenging, maybe because we're at a point in life where we're beginning to realize, you know, happily ever after is, is not in the cards for me because of things that have happened in the past or things just haven't worked out in the relationships that I've had to this point and it's not looking favorable going forward. And, and I, understand, I, I understand that theoretically. Obviously, I, I, don't, I haven't been where you are. But I can say this, I think, with perfect confidence, that if you spend the rest of your life abiding in Christ, getting as close to him as you can, walking in his footsteps, receiving his love, being changed by it, and loving others as much as you possibly can, whatever those relationships are and whatever they look like, you're going to live happily ever after. Because that's the relationship more than any other relationship that matters and defines us as human beings and as Christians. You'll never, ever, ever regret growing up into Christ and putting on the attributes of love that Paul defines for us in 1 Corinthians 13. So whoever you are, whatever your situation is, we encourage you now, if you haven't put him on, if you need help in walking with him, to let us know how we can help you